This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Moon Bog by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Martin Rato for Lagamus, and it runs 23 minutes. We will be discussing it afterwards. This Lagamus recording may be distributed and adapted freely for any purpose. Recording by Martin Rato The Moon Bog by Howard Phillips Lovecraft Somewhere, to what remote and fearsome region I know not, Dennis Berry has gone. I was with him the last night he lived among men, and heard his screams when the thing came to him, but all the peasants and police in County Meath could never find him, nor the others, though they searched long and far. And now I shudder when I hear the frogs piping in swamps or see the moon in lonely places. I had known Dennis Berry well in America, where he had grown rich, and had congratulated him when he bought back the old castle by the bog at Sleepy Kildary. It was from Kildary that his father had come, and it was there that he wished to enjoy his wealth among ancestral scenes. Men of his blood had once ruled over Kildary, and built and dwelt in the castle, but those days were very remote, so that for generations the castle had been empty and decaying. After he went to Ireland, Barry wrote me often and told me how under his care the grey castle was rising tower by tower to its ancient splendor, how the ivy was climbing slowly over the restored walls as it had climbed so many centuries ago, and how the peasants blessed him for bringing back the old days with his gold from over the sea. But in time there came troubles, and the peasants ceased to bless him, and fled away instead as from a doom, and then he sent a letter and asked me to visit him, for he was lonely in the castle with no one to speak to save the new servants and laborers he had brought from the north. The bog was the cause of all these troubles, as Barry told me the night I came to the castle. I had reached Kildary in the summer sunset, as the gold of the sky lighted the green of the hills and groves and the blue of the bog, where on a far islet a strange olden ruin glistened spectrally. That sunset was very beautiful, but the peasants at Balilo had warned me against it and said that Kildary had become accursed, so that I almost shuddered to see the high turrets of the castle gilded with fire. Barry's motor had met me at the Ballylow station, for Kildare is off the railway. The villagers had shunned the car and the driver from the north, but had whispered to me with pale faces when they saw I was going to Kildare. And that night after our reunion, Barry told me why. The peasants had gone from Kildare because Dennis Barry was to drain the great bog, for all his love of Ireland, America had not left him untouched, and he hated the beautiful wasted space where peat might be cut and land opened up. 
The legends and superstitions of Kildare did not move him, and he laughed when the peasants first refused to help, and then cursed him and went away to Balilo with their few belongings as they saw his determination. In their place he sent for laborers from the north, and when the servants left he replaced them likewise. But it was lonely among strangers, so Barry had asked me to come. When I heard the fears which had driven the people from Kildare, I laughed as loudly as my friend had laughed, for these fears were of the vaguest, wildest, and most absurd character. They had to do with some preposterous legend of the bog, and a grim guardian spirit that dwelt in the strange olden ruin on the far islet I'd seen in the sunset. There were tales of dancing lights in the dark of the moon, and of chill winds when the night was warm, of wraiths and white hovering over the waters, and of an imagined city of stone deep down below the swampy surface. But foremost among the weird fancies, and alone in its absolute unanimity, was that of the curse awaiting him who should dare to touch or drain the vast reddish morass. There were secrets, said the peasants, which must not be uncovered, Secrets that had lain hidden since the play came to the children of Partholan in the fabulous years beyond history. In the Book of Invaders it is told that these sons of the Greeks were all buried at Talach, but old men in Kildare said that the city was overlooked, save by its patron moon goddess, so that only the wooded hills buried it when the men of Nemet swept down from Scythia in their thirty ships. Such were the idle tales which had made the villagers leave Kildare, and when I heard them I did not wonder that Dennis Berry had refused to listen. He had, however, a great interest in antiquities, and proposed to explore the bog thoroughly when it was drained. The white ruins on the islet he had often visited, but though their age was plainly great, and their contour very little like that of most ruins in Ireland, they were too dilapidated to tell the days of their glory. Now the work of drainage was ready to begin, and the laborers from the north were soon to strip the forbidden bog of its green moss and red heather, and kill the tiny shell-paved streamlets and quiet blue pools fringed with rushes. After Barry had told me these things I was very drowsy, for the travels of the day had been wearying and my host had talked late into the night. A man-servant showed me to my room, which was in a remote tower overlooking the village and the plain at the edge of the bog and the bog itself, so that I could see from my windows in the moonlight the silent roofs from which the peasants had fled, and which now sheltered the laborers from the north, and to the parish church with its antique spire, and far out across the brooding bog the remote olden ruin on the islet gleaming white and spectral. Just as I dropped to sleep I fancied I heard faint sounds from the distance, sounds that were wild and half-musical, and stirred me with a weird excitement which colored my dreams. But when I awake next morning I felt it had all been a dream, for the visions I'd seen were more wonderful than any sound of wild pipes in the night. Influenced by the legends that Barry had related, my mind had in slumber hovered around a stately city in a green valley, 
where marble streets and statues, villas and temples, carvings and inscriptions, all spoke in certain tones the glory that was Greece. When I told this dream to Barry, we had both laughed, but I laughed the louder, because he was perplexed about his laborers from the north. For the sixth time they had all overslept, waking very slowly and dazedly, and acting as if they had not rested, although they were known to have gone early to bed the night before. That morning and afternoon I wandered alone through the sun-gilded village, and talked now and then with idle laborers, for Barry was busy with the final plans for beginning his work of drainage. The laborers were not as happy as they might have been, for most of them seemed uneasy over some dream which they'd had, yet which they tried in vain to remember. I told them of my dream, but they were not interested till I spoke of the weird sounds I thought I'd heard. Then they looked oddly at me and said that they seemed to remember weird sounds too. In the evening Barry dined with me and announced that he would begin the drainage in two days. I was glad, for although I disliked to see the moss and the heather and the little streams and lakes depart, I had a growing wish to discern the ancient secrets the deep matted peat might hide. And that night my dreams of piping flutes and marble peristyles came to a sudden and disquieting end. For upon the city in the valley I saw a pestilence descend, and that a frightful avalanche of wooded slopes that covered the dead bodies in the streets and left unburied only the temple of Artemis on the high peak where the aged moon-priestess Cleus lay cold and silent with a crown of ivory on her silver head. I have said that I awake suddenly and in alarm. For some time I could not tell whether I was waking or sleeping, for the sound of flutes still rang shrilly in my ears. But when I saw on the floor the icy moonbeams and the outlines of a lattice gothic window, I decided I must be awake and in the castle of Kildary. Then I heard a clock from some remote landing below strike the hour of two, and I knew I was awake. Yet still there came that monstrous piping from afar, wild, weird airs that made me think of some dance of fawns on distant Menelaus. It would not let me sleep, and in impatience I sprang up and paced the floor. Only by chance did I go to the north window and look out upon the silent village and the plain at the edge of the bog. I had no wish to gaze abroad, for I wanted to sleep, but the flutes tormented me, and I had to do or see something. How could I have suspected the thing I was to behold? There in the moonlight that flooded the spacious plain was a spectacle which no mortal, having seen it, could ever forget. To the sound of reedy pipes that echoed over the bog, there glided silently and eerily a mixed throng of swaying figures, reeling through such a revel as the Sicilians may have danced to Demeter in the old days under the harvest moon beside the Kenai. The wide plain, the golden moonlight, the shadowy moving forms, and above all the shrill, monotonous piping, produced an effect which almost paralyzed me. Yet I noted amidst my fear that half of these tireless mechanical dancers were the laborers whom I had thought asleep, 
whilst the other half were strange, airy beings in white, half indeterminate in nature, but suggesting pale, wistful naiads from the haunted fountains of the bog. I do not know how long I gazed at this sight from the lonely turret window before I dropped suddenly in a dreamless swoon, out of which the high sun of morning aroused me. My first impulse on awaking was to communicate all my fears and observations to Dennis Berry, but as I saw the sunlight glowing through the latticed east window, I became sure that there was no reality in what I thought I had seen. I am given to strange phantasms, yet am never weak enough to believe in them, so on this occasion contented myself with questioning the laborers, who slept very late and recalled nothing of the previous night save misty dreams of shrill sounds. This matter of the spectral piping harassed me greatly, and I wondered if the crickets of autumn had come before their time to vex the night and haunt the visions of men. Later in the day I watched Barry in the library poring over his plans for the great work which was to begin on the morrow, and for the first time felt a touch of the same kind of fear that had driven the peasants away. For some unknown reason I dreaded the thought of disturbing the ancient bog and its sunless secrets, and pictured terrible sights lying black under the unmeasured depth of age-old peat. That these secrets should be brought to light seemed injudicious, and I began to wish for an excuse to leave the castle and the village. I went so far as to talk casually to Barry on the subject, but did not dare continue after he gave his resounding laugh. So I was silent when the sun set fulgently over the far hills, and Kildare blazed all red and gold in a flame that seemed a portent. Whether the events of that night were of reality or illusion I shall never ascertain. Certainly they transcend anything we dream of in nature and the universe. Yet in no normal fashion can I explain those disappearances which were known to all men after it was over. I retired early and full of dread, and for a long time could not sleep in the uncanny silence of the tower. It was very dark, for although the sky was clear, the moon was now well on the wane, and would not rise till the small hours. I thought as I lay there of Dennis Berry and of what would befall that bog when the day came, and found myself almost frantic with an impulse to rush out into the night, take Berry's car, and drive madly to Ballylow out of the menaced lands. But before my fears could crystallize into action, I had fallen asleep and gazed in dreams upon the city and the valley, cold and dead under a shroud of hideous shadow. Probably it was the shrill piping that awaked me, yet that piping was not what I noticed first when I opened my eyes. I was lying with my back to the east window, overlooking the bog, where the waning moon would rise, and therefore expected to see light cast on the opposite wall before me. But I had not looked for such a sight as now appeared. Light, indeed, glowed on the panels ahead, but it was not any light that the moon gives. Terrible and piercing was the shaft of ruddy refulgence that streamed through the Gothic window, and the whole chamber was brilliant with a splendor intense and unearthly. 
My immediate actions were peculiar for such a situation, but it is only in tales that a man does the dramatic and foreseen thing. Instead of looking out across the bog toward the source of the new light, I kept my eyes from the window in panic and fear, and clumsily drew on my clothing with some dazed idea of escape. I remember seizing my revolver and hat, but before it was over, I had lost them both without firing the one or donning the other. After a time, the fascination of the red radiance overcame my fright, and I crept to the east window and looked out whilst the maddening, incessant piping whined and reverberated through the castle and over all the village. Over the bog was a deluge of flaring light, scarlet and sinister, and pouring from the strange old ruin on the far islet. The aspect of that ruin I cannot describe. I must have been mad, for it seemed to rise majestic and undecayed, splendid and column-cinctured, the flame reflecting marble of its entablature piercing the sky like the apex of a temple on a mountaintop. Flutes shrieked and drums began to beat, and as I watched in awe and terror, I thought I saw a dark, sultan form silhouetted grotesquely against the vision of marble and effulgence. The effect was titanic, altogether unthinkable, and I might have stared indefinitely had not the sound of the piping seemed to grow stronger at my left. Trembling with terror, oddly mixed with ecstasy, I crossed the circular room to the north window from which I could see the village and the plain at the edge of the bog. There my eyes dilated again with a wild wonder as great as if I had just turned from a scene beyond the pale of nature, for on the ghastly red-litten plain was moving a procession of beings in such a manner as none ever saw before save in nightmares." Half gliding, half floating in the air, the white-clad bog wraiths were slowly retreating toward the still waters and the island ruin in fantastic formations suggesting some ancient and solemn ceremonial dance. Their waving translucent arms, guided by the detestable piping of those unseen flutes, beckoned in uncanny rhythm to a throng of lurching laborers who followed dog-like with blind, brainless, floundering steps as if dragged by a clumsy but resistless demon will. As the naiads neared the bog without altering their course, a new line of stumbling stragglers zigzagged drunkenly out of the castle from some door far below my window, groped sightlessly across the courtyard and through the intervening bit of village, and joined the floundering column of laborers on the plain. Despite their distance below me, I at once knew they were the servants brought from the north, for I recognized the ugly and unwieldy form of the cook, whose very absurdness had now become unutterably tragic. The flutes piped horribly, and again I heard the beating of the drums from the direction of the island ruin. Then silently and gracefully the naiads reached the water and melted one by one into the ancient bog, while the line of followers, never checking their speed, splashed awkwardly after them and vanished amidst the tiny vortex of unwholesome bubbles which I could barely see in the scarlet light. And as the last pathetic straggler, the fat cook, sank heavily out of sight in that sullen pool, the flutes and drums grew silent, 
and the blinding red rays from the ruins snapped instantaneously out, leaving the village of doom lone and desolate in the wan beams of a new-risen moon. My condition was now one of indescribable chaos, not knowing whether I was mad or sane, sleeping or waking, I was saved only by a merciful numbness. I believe I did ridiculous things, such as offering prayers to Artemis, Latona, Demeter, Persephone, and Pluton. All that I recalled of the classic youth came to my lips as the horrors of the situation roused my deepest superstitions. I felt that I had witnessed the death of a whole village and knew I was alone in the castle with Dennis Berry, whose boldness had brought down a doom. As I thought of him, new terrors convulsed me, and I fell to the floor, not fainting, but physically helpless. Then I felt the icy blast from the east window where the moon had risen, and began to hear the shrieks in the castle far below me, Soon those shrieks had attained a magnitude and quality which cannot be written of, and which makes me faint as I think of them. All I can say is that they came from something I had known as a friend. At some time during this shocking period the cold wind and the screaming must have roused me, for my next impression is of racing madly through the inky rooms and corridors and out across the courtyard into the hideous night. They found me at dawn, wandering mindless near Balilo, but what unhinged me utterly was not any of the horrors I had seen or heard before. What I muttered about as I came slowly out of the shadows was a pair of fantastic incidents which occurred in my flight, incidents of no significance yet which haunt me unceasingly when I am alone in certain marshy places or in the moonlight. As I fled from that accursed castle along the bog's edge I heard a new sound, common yet unlike any I had heard before at Kildare, the stagnant waters lately quite devoid of animal life, now teemed with a horde of slimy, enormous frogs, which piped shrilly and incessantly in tones strangely out of keeping with their size. They glistened, bloated and green in the moonbeams, and seemed to gaze up at the fount of light. I followed the gaze of one very fat and ugly frog, and saw the second of the things which drove my senses away. Stretching directly from the strange olden ruin on the far islet to the waning moon, my eyes seemed to trace a beam of faint, quivering radiance having no reflection in the waters of the bog. And upward along that pallid path my fevered fancy pictured a thin shadow slowly writhing, a vague, contorted shadow struggling as if drawn by unseen demons." Crazed as I was, I saw in that awful shadow a monstrous resemblance, a nauseous, unbelievable caricature, a blasphemous effigy of him who had been Dennis Berry. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. Hi, I'm Juan Luis Perez. And we're going to talk about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's H.P. Lovecraft's short story, The Moonbog. With, with a hyphen in it. Yeah, uh, 
I'm not sure why that is, but maybe that's important. Uh, it's published first published in I think uh, Weird Tales, June 1926, but was written for March 1921. Some sort of amateur journalist thing. St. Patrick's Day, right? I know. Yeah. Um, this, uh, this story sort of gets neglected. Uh, Juan Luis, you, you make note of how many people have said bad things about this story. Yeah, actually, most of the critics consider the story as a, as a really poor one, but I completely uh, disagree with that idea. Yeah, I, 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 I quite like this story. I, I understand sort of it's, it's very small scale. It, has um, sort of a compressed storytelling technique. You know, there's really no characters other than the, the there's there's the main <laughs> character Dennis Barry and a chef, and then everybody else is just nameless, faceless mm-hmm. folks. Laborers uh, or wraiths? Yeah, <laughs> it was na- name, nameless ones though too. Right? I mean, some gods get mentioned, but really, I think part of the story, t- the reason why this story can be this short is because of how compressed the storytelling is in that way. But uh, I think there's probably because there's no um, Cthulhu mythos sort of monsters Mm -hmm. in it. I think that that's also why people don't like it. They don't expect it. But I think the story is related. Uh, Juan Luis, I didn't see you mention it in your, uh, in your doctoral dissertation paper on this, but um, the tree by H.P. Lovecraft. Have you guys read that story? Yeah, I, I read yeah. it. I read it. I didn't mention that, but definitely there is something there. I mean, yeah, that's a Greek. It's it's got a couple. You know, the same mountain is mentioned. Yes. Um, it's it's a Greek. I want to say tragedy, but not exactly. Um, and I think uh, the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast. You know, they were surprised that there was when they did that show that they were surprised that the 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 text wasn't more explicit about what was happening in it. I think this mm. one's a little simpler in that respect. I quite like the tree a lot as well, and I, I guess if you go in knowing that there's no uh, Cthulhu monsters in it, that uh, that'll soften the blow when it comes to. I, I think it's a pretty good story. What do you think, Mister Jimmoon? Um, I must admit, when I first read this, um, when I got a hold of three big uh, paperback omnibuses <laughs> um, modelled on the Arkham House collections, collecting is pretty much nearly all his works. Uh, so this is in the second volume, Dig, and another of the Macabre Tales. That's a lot of his early work, and that volume I kind of enjoyed the least because it kind of when I read it as a teenager, I was looking for the mythology. I was <laughs> looking, you know, for the name drops of, you know. If the story didn't mention Cthulhu, Yogg-Sothoth, or name-check the Necronomicon, it wasn't up to much. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in later years when I've gone back and we read a lot of the early Lovecraft and kind of having sort of flushed that kind of obsession with the great old ones out of my system, you know, you find there's, there's a lot to enjoy in these early tales. Um, and I think this does get overlooked. In context of the early tales, it doesn't fit into his Dreamland stories either. And it just sits on its own. And reading mm-hmm. it now, it's kind of, it reminds me, you can still see Lovecraft being very influenced by Poe in it, which is mm-hmm. um, why the language gets a bit fruity and moonlight <laughs> is always fulgent and uh, dark shapes are saltant and people have to reach for dictionaries. But 
Um, I think if anyone else other than Lovecraft had written this, um, the story would have a far better reputation um, <laughs> because he's got some wonderful imagery and a wonderful atmosphere. And uh, contrary to like the likes of uh, S.T. Joshi, who says, oh, it's just overwritten supernaturalism, I think in the context of kind of wider weird fiction, I mean, if anyone else had written this, it'd be much anthologized as a... As a, as a minor classic or a, a, an overlooked gem, because the imagery in, is so strong and it's so strange. I, I was thinking that if if uh, people didn't know this was written by Lovecraft, it would be something that they would have said, "Oh, Lovecraft was totally influenced by this," because <laughs> sure. it has all of the elements of a Lovecraft story without the. So I guess the the most similarly structural uh, to this would be. Uh, the rats in the walls, right? It's basically the same yeah. idea. Some some guys building a house uh, out of an old castle of his ancestors, and then uh, in that case, it's Roman gods, isn't it? Um, rather than Greek gods, I think it's Rome. Roman Greek is all classics. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I mean, I personally, I draw connect this more strongly to uh, Hypnos. Hmm. Interesting, because we've we've done Hypnos, and I didn't think of that story very much, other than it's got. You know the Greek uh, statues going on in it. How how would you connect it so in that way? Uh, well, in this, there's the, a the series of dream visions, uh, like hypnos. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a there's a menacing, malevolent force being awakened by accessing these dreams. Uh, both stories feature this kind of um, this idea of um, this music, this piping from beyond, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the but. Most clearly, is the end of uh, the protagonist at both ends. Both are drawn up in shafts of light to meet some unspeakable. Oh thing. right, I forgot about that part. Yes, interesting. Uh, also, that- also, the theme of this, the hint of uh, transformation. I mean, um, uh, the narrator's uh, idol and mentor in hypnosis is allegedly at the end transformed into a sculpture. Whereas in this, it's heavily implied that the labourers who were drawn into the somnambulistic revels with the bog rakes have been transformed into large unwholesome frogs. Yeah, uh, Juan Luis, I didn't, I didn't see that in your your article. You seem to uh, think you you had an interesting idea that there was a conflict between the goddess and and the the servants of the goddess. Yeah. Um, well, I was mentioning that as a, one of the hypotheses. Um, I was um, considering, I was considering like the naiads, the the servants of the goddess, as having some kind of um, sexual affair with the peasants who were working in the castle, and they are kind of punished uh, for that, and they become uh, frogs, like at the very end, which is like the most strange ah. image in the text, probably. There is a moment in which um, the protagonist run away, runs away from the castle at the very end, and he sees a lot of frogs, and it is not clear what is going on with the frogs, if the frogs are the peasants, or it is the, the naiads, or what. Mm-hmm. So um, Burleson, one author, author who studied this a little bit, uh, suggested that it is the, the peasants, but I did something different. I consider it is definitely the naiads that have been uh, punished by, by the goddess. Because they did something oh. obscure, or sexual with the with the with the peasants. Well, Lovecraft would certainly love to punish people for for the sexual <laughs> stuff. That's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Uh 
I, I, the one thing that I thought was inter- uh, that was an interesting way of, of refuting that would be to point out that that the frog that he per- catches the narrator's particular attention is quite large, as opposed to I guess the other large frogs that are in the story. I mean, it, it, he just says a particularly large one. Uh, he catches the eye of that frog, and then he follows the frog's eye up into the sky, and that made me think of. The the cook, who is the only worker or servant uh, from the north that's that's got any description at all. Um, you remember the cook is yes. going into the into the bog with following the naiads and and it's sort of a, a brief description of how clumsy uh, this particular uh, dancer is. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, is is that is that the cook being transformed into, you know, he's a big cook, so he's transformed into a big frog. That's possible. I hadn't thought of that, but that's that's a possibility. But then the piping also makes me think that that the frogs were there in the first place, right? Like, if you think about what what's going on uh, it, over the, I guess, the success of nights approaching the the draining of the the bog is that the narrator's dreams are haunted by the piping. He goes and looks out the window uh, in a half-dream state and sees all these uh, revelries going on, and he's he, he's like, I'm not going to that party. Um, it's kind of uh, like, where's that sound coming from? Uh, the pipes of Pan? Yeah, uh, and it puzzled me, um, you know, for a while... It- it's amazing to me how non-Irish this is, uh, mm. and Juan Luis's paper helped me kind of understand that. But you know, when I heard the piping first, like you know, I pictured you know the Celtic, oh gosh, this is horrible. That the the Titanic song where the you know you hear that. So I was picturing that rather than pan flutes or pan pipes, and and gradually I got there reading the story, but that wasn't my initial take of it and so i kind of i thought this story had a lot of interesting ideas in terms of um colonization and invasion you kind of have two competing models of of colonization you have the greek kind of aristocratic model as as juan luis mentioned of greeks coming in and and taking over which as far as i can tell is completely mythical i don't think there's much or any historical evidence for the greeks having spent any time in ireland i think they knew about it but weren't really there. Um, and then you contrast that with the um, Dennis Berry's capitalist colonial efforts to come in and drain the bog and all of that. So I, I really wrestled with that for a while. The Protestant work ethic of the American is, is what taints the, the, the situation. He comes in, they love, love his gold because he's restoring the castle, they're giving everybody, giving everybody work in town. Yeah. And they, I, I found it, I mean, that's, uh, that's a pretty strong can- condemnation when every peasant in the surrounding neighborhood and in the town itself flees, right? Le- and not just like says, you know, don't do this, this is bad. Um, and then lets it happen, but they actually leave the the whole land. It's very interesting because I, I was thinking, okay, so the servants get pulled into this bog, right, out of the castle. Dennis Berry gets a special treatment being pulled up 
I was thinking, is he is his corpse up there on the moon? <laughs> like when Neil Armstrong lands and gets out, <laughs> yeah. he's like, what the hell? There's a dead guy <laughs> lying in there on the moon. Um, this is one small step. Oh, what the hell? Yeah, it's it's interest uh, it, it, the 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 aspect uh, the aspect of what what it, is the purpose of you know drawing him up is quite interesting as opposed to you know sort of the punishment uh uh pied piper of hamlin style of all the other folks who are who are helping on in very even tangential ways helping uh the new ar- aristocrat drain the bog i mean the chef what the hell did he have to do with the draining of the bog he just fed the people who were going to drain the bog right so it's funny that the narrator isn't affected at, at least in the sense that he's not turned into a frog or drowned right he his his the other thing that's interesting there in him not being affected is he grabs his hat and his gun, which I thought was hilarious. He's got a <laughs> he wants to steal he wants to steal Dennis Berry's motor and drive away, but he grabs his hat and his gun and he doesn't end up using either. Which is it's like what he 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 went to visit his friend in Ireland and he brought his revolver with him. What the hell's going on? He's kind of like um, Ishmael, I guess, in uh, Moby Dick in a, in a way, in that he's sort of. He's our narrator. He's more or less blameless, and I think that's kind of how he escapes. But like Ishmael, he's tormented a little bit by what he's seen as he tells us. Yeah, he's not the, in the employ of his friend. So I, uh, is is it is that why he's not punished in the way that everyone else in in the neighbor is neighborhood is? All the northern are they northern Irish? Is that the idea? Because they're just called northerners over and over again. Yeah, well, I didn't get the geography hmm. of this. Well, I think Lovecraft's fairly hazy on the geography of it, because there isn't a county Kildare. There's a county Kildare, um, which is south of Meath County. <laughs> um, He's never been to Ireland. No, no. I mean, it's one of those, if you didn't know it was in Ireland, it could be kind of anywhere in the British Isles, really. Because <laughs> mm. uh, he doesn't have a, a particularly... Hugely Irish, obviously Irish flavour. I mean, I read it as kind of the narrator. He was kind of he was he was a bit affected, but managed to you know resist the call of the pipes somehow. And this is why you know he quite sensibly for a for a narrator, right? Everything's lit up red. People are streaming up the castle and disappearing into the bog and drowning themselves. I'm getting my hat and gun. I'm going to steal a car and get out of Dodge. (laughs) (laughs) But um, he doesn't quite manage it because he's sufficiently befuddled. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is quite a change from a Lovecraft narrator who, you know, stereotypically, rightly or wrongly, people say, oh, these they always faint. Uh, the other thing uh, that I really like about this story, and I, I, I think it, it just makes me enjoy it all the more. And it's funny, uh, Juan Luis, um, I think you should add this if you ever revise this paper. Um, because I think it's really important. <laughs> I, I, in so many Lovecraft stories, especially these early short ones, I don't find it so much in the later ones, but in the early short ones, it's it's prose poems, right? They are um, full of language that is just beautiful to hear. When I mean, he it's right in the first line, right? He says, uh, or the first paragraph, anyways. Uh, he says, "All the peasants and police in County Meath could never find him." 
Mm. Peasants and police, the the pairing of the peas, right? The papas and the mamas and the uh, there's lots of end rhymes, the same, but lots and lots of paired alliteration throughout the poem. Um, the, the illustration from Weird Tales has the end, the end line. I love, I love that. You know the the spoilers right right in the beginning of the picture. <laughs> it says, "And upward along that pallid path, my fevered fancy pictured a thin shadow slowly writhing." The pallid path, fevered fancy. It's like the pair each for each naiad. There's a worker, you know, mm. and it's like they grab them and they pull them down into the into the bog. I, I just thought that was really interesting. Well, Juan Luis mentions, um, uh, quotes that passage from Supernatural Horror, uh, or I forget the essay's name, but we've mentioned it on the podcast before. Um, and he mentions that uh, the weird, like like poetry, like literature, has its has its inception in poetry, and mm-hmm. so I think that really fits. It's it's so nice to read this aloud. Like, um, you know, the the best audiobook version is the is the version you you do yourself. Uh, hopefully there's an audience there to participate with you. Otherwise, you're just a little weirdo. But it's it's really nice. I mean, the the, the language pairing. Uh, there's another story. Uh, the festival is also like that. It has yes, a lot of yes. beautiful, beautiful um, prose poems. It's very Dunsanian, but, uh, you know, it uses... Much more <laughs> architectural uh, sort of. You know, this is a sort of a, another ode to architecture, right? I love those Greek those Greek pillars and <laughs> such. Uh, the um, Paris styles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to look that up. <laughs> yeah, he, he can't he can't resist throwing in the odd gambrel roof whenever he can. <laughs> um, I, I when I when I read uh, the festival with my students. Um, I end up explaining, you know, basically all of American architecture because there's all these uh, chimney chimney pots and you know a million different like, you know, let's let's walk through town. Oh, look, there's another uh, gambrel roof. Can we say that Tolkien, uh, Lovecraft is to architecture as Tolkien is to geography? Is that a fair uh, analogy. I- I would say it's more like Tolkien is to linguistics, don't you? I mean, he it's so central to his love. Yeah, um, but he has such a love for natural. I mean, you get words, that's all true. sorts of words for geographical features that you've never heard of before. Yeah, I, I just wouldn't say geography as because he he doesn't he's not very good at like putting mountains in the right place. But he does <laughs> love he does does love his meadows and stuff like that, right? Right. And you know valleys and hollows and all that. I mean, I was thinking um, also riffing on Tolkien. I was thinking of the Dead Marshes um, and just the thematic, this thematic idea of a long a swamp or a marsh or a bog as a as a narrative device for a long buried and and suppressed past. And that kind of mm-hmm. speaks to the gothic gothic nature of this story, which I, Juan Luis talked about too a little bit. Neat. Well. Um, um, I well, I, I lost my mind about a couple of things, but yeah, basically, first, first of all, I have the feeling like um, you have been mentioning uh, Lovecraft's interest in architecture and nature, well, landscape and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the feeling he's definitely obsessed with the two of them. Um, if you have a look at the Mountains of Madness, um, 
description of the city is, is kind of crazy. It's kind of <laughs> he's, he's definitely obsessed with that. But when he deals with nature, uh, the first tale that came to my mind is um, um, the horror of the witch. Um, Mm -hmm. The description of the landscape uh, made me think of of those old films by um, um, uh, the cabinet of uh, Dr. Caligari, um, mm. these um, impressionistic films with when he describes the landscape, all the trees uh, are kind of uh, threatening the walker, and you get lost, you get lost between in the in the forest and so on. The description. It's really obsessive, um, and I think this is the thing as well. I mean, this mix up with the Donsanian element and with this kind of over-adjectivation that Lovecraft always uses, and the result is what you get in the Moonbog. But I don't think... I mean, I, I, I would consider the Moonbog as part of the Donsanian, um, the Donsanian tradition, definitely from the group of tales that Lovecraft wrote in a Donsanian style. That's why I think... Uh, this embellished style and like um, uh, narrative prose or something like that. You know, there's a, a, a connection that I, I mentioned. I got at three o'clock in the morning last night. Um, I couldn't sleep because of the heat, and uh, just listening to the story, reading the reading the the essay, and. And just thinking and thinking about the story, why why is it that I like it, even though you know everybody says it's not that great a story? Um, even on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, you know they do, did it as a two a two uh, part of a two episodes. They did two stories in one episode, and it was you know a pair of sort of dogs. You know the, a couple of stories they didn't like. This was like the the quest of Aranin in this one, and I re, re listened to their thing on it and. It, you know, they they sort of thought it was interesting, but they just thought it was a lesser work. And I was like, no, there's there's something about this that even though, yeah, I can see it it is sort of young. It's very compressed. You know, the the it's it's got the unnamed narrator and the you know the the named guy who you know sort of fits into this sort of statement of Randolph Carter style storytelling where. Uh, Juan Luis, you call him an unreliable narrator. I didn't think about that, but yeah, of course he is. Um, especially when later on he says, you know, I don't know what happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At some, some point he's he's got to be quite unreliable. That's one of the features, of the main features of the classical Gothic tradition. If you if you think about any classical Gothic author, think about um, Edgar Allan Poe. Most of his narrators, you cannot really... Um, you know, they're insane, most of them, yeah. And that's, I think that's, that's a good point. Yeah, and you you also connected this right right at the beginning to um, the fall of the House of Usher, which I I also thought was interesting because that is exactly mm -hmm. the setup. Right, is that a friend comes to visit a guy who who has no friends anymore, yes. and whose family is essentially dead. Right, where, where is his wife? Where are his kids? Where is uncles and aunts who came to help him? They're they're not there, right? And the, his father, who come, who came from this land, and who were once kings, right? You make a very nice point about how he's rich uh, in gold, but he's not sort of rich in uh, obviously friends, uh, uh, family, right? He's, yeah, anything he's human. Friend. He's got one friend who apparently has time to come visit him, I guess. But it's it's a very interesting thing thing going on in here, and. 
I mean, the obvious one that we haven't talked about is uh, the ecological uh, uh, thing that's going on. You know, when you drain the swamp, uh, where are all the birds going to go, right? Where are all the frogs going to live? Yeah, it's this idea of enclosure that, you know, is a, a big deal for a lot of English English history and presumably Irish, too, of you know, fencing out, you know, destroying the common lands for for the purposes of a few. Notice it drives off the people, too. Yeah. And I, I think that it's interesting because the taboo that the locals have with regard to this swamp is it's vague and, you know, it's like bad things will happen. And that's kind of actually how we have to think about how, you know, when when you kill off one species in, you know, in, in a particular land, you actually don't know what the, all the consequences of that will be. You, you know, you know, say some of the predators that feed on that animal are going to be gone, but then you don't think about what else happens. So what what I like about the, the taboo nature like, that's in here is that Dennis Berry's friend is obvious. Uh, sorry, Dennis Berry himself is he's not he's not wise, um, and when he rejects the local taboo because as superstitious, the the one thing that gets repeated in this story that's so short over and over again is the laughing. Right, they're always laughing. One, they're first they're laughing at the 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 foolish locals, and then later on they're laughing at how how difficult situation becomes, and it's like a contest to see who can laugh harder. <laughs> they, they have a lot of <laughs> a good time in the tale, definitely. <laughs> kind of a uh, the pre-party uh, laugh where everybody gets drunk and drowns themselves in the bog. <laughs> but I, uh, I, On the ecological thing, right. I mean... Um, um, recently on my blog I do a regular thing, Folklore on Friday, where I mm-hmm. delve into a different bit of folklore, and I've, uh, it'll be up by the time this show comes out, but uh, I just did one, um, which was about draining a bog. Um, oh. In uh, the county of Lincolnshire in England, which is very flat, that was originally all fens and marshes, and in King Charles I's time, he brought over Dutch engineers to start draining the bogs. Now, according to local superstition the bog was home to a race of fairy folk called the Tiddy people. Tiddy ah. being a, a local um, sort of dialect phrase for little. Mm-hmm. Um, and the head of the, the Tiddy people was the man called the Tiddy Mun, or the little man in the local dialect. Are we going to have to censor play- this podcast? Probably <laughs> not. But <laughs> this, uh, uh, this, this figure was the most fearsome. He was dressed all in grey and appeared at twilight, often in the mists, and he was responsible... Um, for the raising of the, wa- of the water levels, and was also blamed for if anyone drowned in the marshes. Uh, when they, the Dutch engineers came to drain the bog, um, they started disappearing, which was blamed on the Tidimun. Uh, but also a curse fell upon the land. Um, the animals threw, grew lame, uh, there was a sickness, swamp fever and ague among the people, and the horses went lame. Um, now, the, the locals then started pouring water on the ground to appease him and a pact was reached and every new moon in this area of Lincolnshire it was a tradition to go out and pour fresh water into the um, canals and dikes to appease him so the curse wouldn't come back and a folklorist um, in the 80s actually did some research and uh, came up with the idea that actually 
The um, apart from a couple of aspects of the curse, which is traditional fairy mischief, such as the milk curdling, everything else could be explained by the ecological damage done mm. by draining the bogs. In draining the bogs, suddenly you got lots of low-standing water, which led to an increase in the mosquito population, which spread the diseases. And the medical records showed a big upswing in the, you know, it was like a little mini plague actually did occur at that time. Uh, likewise, it's kind of the animals went lame because um, they were used to working on, um, uh, grown up for generations, working on soft, boggy soil. And the new soil that had been filled in was hard and the local kind of breed of horses, were like ponies, were actually eventually uh, replaced by bigger horses from elsewhere in the country that were used to mm. walking on hard ground. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, I, you know, when I read reread this, I kind of I did did wonder whether Lovecraft had maybe come across this this curse of the Tiddyman folktale because it is repeated in quite a few volumes of folklore and um, you know provided maybe a touch of inspiration for. <laughs> For the moon bog, because there is some definite parallels to it. If, uh... mm-hmm. It also makes it, me think of uh, uh, even the town of Bath, which in the Roman name for it was Aquae Sulis, which um, was named after a local god, I think Sul or, or something mm-hmm. of that nature. So it's kind of uh, like Jim Moon's story, where the ecological and the mythological kind of intersect in a great way, which is borne out in this story. Definitely. Um, and this is this is the, what uh, you know. Just thinking about that aspect of it, um, and about the destruction of a, sort of a sacred uh, a sacred bog in this case, a sacred space um, for a god that's no longer revered. Late in the story, the main character, you know, he throws his gun away or whatever, and he starts praying to every god and goddess that might have any sort of sway on on him not you know being drowned or thrown up into the sky or whatever it is um and uh, in a sense you might say that it works too because he doesn't he doesn't have that fate happen to him um and it's interesting because there's another story that i i thought oh yeah there is this and um i'm not sure that lovecraft read it but he certainly could have and he probably did, given how much he liked weird fiction. But I have not, I have not gone into uh, supernatural and horror to see what uh, he had to say about it. If he did, he's certainly familiar with John Buchan. But there's a story called the Grove of Ashtaroth, which was published in Blackwoods in uh, June 1910, and it's a little bit longer than uh, maybe double the length of. Of this, but it has very similar premise, um, except it's set in Africa. And uh, I'll read the description. This is his, Christopher Hitchens uh, talked about it in an article, and I thought that was really cool. Uh, so here's a description from uh, the Atlantic Monthly, March 2004. In a remarkable short story, The Grove of Ashtaroth, the hero finds himself a blot. He's an unnamed narrator as well finds himself obliged to destroy the gorgeous little temple of a sensual cult because he believes that by doing so he will sal- salvage the health and sanity of a friend. But he simultaneously believes himself to be committing an unpardonable act of desecration. And the eerie voice that beseeches him to stay his hand is un- unmistakably feminine. 
what's so interesting about this story is that it's it's set in uh, probably Rhodesia. Um, it's South African sort of mining uh, rapists, you know, <laughs> they come in and they <laughs> take up the dig up the land and, and export the goods, either gold or I think it was diamonds in, in the story. I can't re- recall exactly. That's not really important. The important part is they're riding in the countryside and they happen across a grove. And one of the the, the characters just, just falls in love instantaneously with this landscape and decides to build what would will be an ancestral home in the same way that uh, Dennis Berry's ancestors built that castle. He's building something there. But um, when when they explore the area around that's so beautifully laid out, it's like a garden, they notice that there's a, a, a grove of white trees and above them are uh, circling doves. And they, well, that's unusual, right? <laughs> white <laughs> trees and doves. And the main character thinks, oh, that's odd. And then he leaves. He goes back to England. And then his friend writes him and says, oh, yes, um, the, the construction is coming along beautifully. Right? And he, he explains how he's hired all the locals to come help him. He might even have some local people flee and then come, you know, hire new ones in the same way. I can't recall it exactly. But, um, he then gets another letter from his friend saying, Oh, I'm becoming ill and I'm having trouble, I think, managing my, my locals. Can you come and hang out with me in my new castle? He, the friend returns and he comes to the conclusion that uh, the odd conclusion that that grove nearby is uh, beloved of Ashtaroth, uh, otherwise known as Ishtar and a bunch of other. Uh, it's like a Canaanite god mentioned in the Bible. Right. Um, and he comes to the conclusion that it's it's the sacri- the the damaging of the lands, this beautiful sort of Garden of Eden in the hidden parts of Africa that it is causing his friend to wither away. So he's going to cut down the, the grove and uh, dig up the roots of the trees. And as he's doing this, um, the voice of Ashtoreth says, you, you stop, you know, this is my sacred lands. Please don't do this. The goddess has become so weak that all she can do is plead. Um, but the narrator goes through the, through with it and, even I think he dynamites the tree the tree roots just to get them all out so they can never grow back, and that's the end of the story. Very interesting sort of uh, opposite ecological result, right? Yeah. Juan Luis, you were saying that this is one of the happy stories, you know? Well, yeah, I say it's happy because well, as you as you read, and I I tried to avoid the ecological approach because it has been already mentioned by several authors. Mm-hmm. My idea was completely different. My idea was to confront um, the invasion of, of, of the decadent uh, American aristocracy into our whole um, the past, the classic past, takes revenge over or against them. Um, so, uh, in that sense, obviously Lovecraft took part of, of the Greeks, definitely. Uh, he was completely... Um, 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 
terrified with how uh, the American aristocracy became uh, a sort of, of puppet of, of um, money. And what I said, it is a happy ending because definitely he's taking part of the Greeks and he's taking revenge over or against the, the, the poor man who only tries to, to become a little bit wealthier in, in Ireland. But yeah, this is the, and the, the story you just mentioned, I didn't know that. And, and the parallelism is, is, is shocking. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it it's you know completely different sort of conclusion, different continent, different kind of god, different kind of god power. Well, but, yeah, but this parallelism is really clear. Yeah, it, it, it's that story works for me in the exact same sort of way as this one. It's you know it's not as stylish, it's not as compressed, but there's something about you know this is this is. Why, you know, I, I used to watch those Robin Hood, uh, you know, shows where, you know, the, the Will Scarlet's out in the woods or whoever it is, Friar Tuck, whoever it is, they're, they're shooting a, the king's deer, right? And, <laughs> and I, and they, and then the sheriff comes up and says, oh, we gotta hang you. Gotta hang you because you're e- shooting the king's deer. It's like, well, that's a terrible deal, you know. It's just a deer, man. I'm hungry. I want to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The people are hungry. I got to feed my family. Um, but then, if you look at Ireland, what happened? Right? Everybody cut down every goddamn tree. Scotland's completely bare. Right? It used to be a forest up there. Uh, it used to be bears there. It used to be lions there. It used to be, you know, we're, we've done this to the whole earth. We've, we, you know, we used to be surrounded by megafauna and then whenever humans move in they're all gone i wonder what happened so this tradition of like putting a taboo or a very high price on on damaging the common land right it 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 fits a lot more to me than just having some you know weird idol you know that is cursed and if you dig up this cursed weird idol it'll I mean, I, I like those stories too. Um, what's the uh, the the Lovecraft story where they go? There's two crazy guys with a black museum, and they go dig up uh, the uh, hound. The hound, right? The, mm. They dig up wizard wizard bodies and and take their amulets, right? And then they put them in their black museum, and then you know they get hounded by a hound um, from hell and. It's a fun, short, little, cute story, but it doesn't have this resonance of of sort of harsh reality that we we do know that there are reasons why there are taboos on some things um, because they can dam. We we don't know how, but we do know that they can damage. And so, in the Grove of Ashtaroth, the the victory of of nature is not assured, right? The the taboo is not strong enough to prevent people from doing even what they know is wrong. And I, I think that it's it's interesting because this one is the opposite. It does feel weird that Lovecraft is sort of falling on the side of well, maybe things can't can stay okay, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's vaguely related to, to that, um, the American horror trope of, oh, someone's built a built a house on an Indian burial ground. Right. Know, it's, it's that right. same taboo idea um, playing out a little differently. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ghosts will come and get you. Ghosts are, uh, I guess, less less threatening in Ireland than uh, than naiads. <laughs> yeah, but as Juan Luis points out, you know, there's no banshee. It's it's um, incredible. Like I said earlier, how un-Irish this is. Mm-hmm. That's. I think that's the point of the of the tale. I mean, that's what I wanted to focus my attention on, and that's the really uh, catchy theme for me of the text. Why is Lovecraft setting a, a, a narration in in Ireland, and he's not using the past and the and the rich traditions, the natural tradition of Ireland? He moves back to Greece. It, it, it made no sense at all until I start digging a little bit on the story and, and got, well, all the conclusions I, I reached. But definitely I think this is one of the most wonderful things of the tale. The use of non-Irish uh, elements is like, wow, man, and you are going to present that. I think he wrote that for a, for a contest of, of amateur journalists during St. Pe- Patrick's Day or something like that. <laughs> I mean, and it was like, hey, here I am. I'm not going to talk about leprechauns at all. I'm going to talk about naiads, which is yeah. It's uh, it's funny. On YouTube, I found um, a very rough sounding. Uh, you have to listen very closely. Retelling of uh, this story uh, from an Irish point of view, which I thought was uh, interesting. Uh, so it's uh, from some Irish storytelling ca- contest or something. It's really unclear what's going on. It's just, you know, somebody introduces the speaker and then says, you know, we're going to have some stories. And then a guy comes up and he starts telling the story of of the moon bog. But he just, you know, disregards any element that he doesn't think is, you know, interesting for his oral retelling of it. And it's much more Irish. Right? It's much more about uh, comedy and uh uh, you know, the Greek elements are, as far as I can tell, are completely excised. And it is much more made traditional, uh, more like like Jim was saying, you know, uh, the sprites, rather, the little people, mm-hmm. rather than um, rather than the Greek, uh, you know, uh, nymphs. Well, there is a, there is a touch to kind of... Um uh, traditional folklore, sort of rather obliquely in it. Um, I mean, lots of plants in the in the UK, and I, be- I believe we have similar legends in the, the US and other places. But in marshlands, there's always local stories of figures and mysterious beings called sort of will o' the wisps or jack o' lanterns. Yes, these dancing lights that appear that lead people into the bogs to their death to drown. And this is kind of a far more um, operatic and uh, classical <laughs> version of that in many ways. <laughs> yeah, it would make a good play, actually. I was thinking that, a great one-act play, yeah. Because it, it has, uh, you know, lots of dancers, <laughs> some of them in white, and then, you know, you have one guy play the frog. The Moonbog, the, the Broadway musical. That's right, and then there's a beam <laughs> of light coming down from from the uh, from the sky, uh, over the audience and drawing up one guy into the. Uh, it's funny that the the beam, moonbeam is not reflected in the water, and it's also funny that the the uh, that they know uh, like even before they keep. Uh, it's funny how long it takes for them to actually start draining the bog. It never actually happens, right? They say, "Going to drain the bog soon." 
<laughs> still prepping for the bog draining, right? And then suddenly uh, it's like, you know, <laughs> goddess Diana says, hmm, hey, I heard something about uh, somebody draining one of my bogs. I better get to this. And <laughs> she, she's like, sends the warning signs, you know, the piping and, Okay, he's definitely going ahead with the plans anyways, despite all the warnings. Okay, better draw him up. Better get those naiads dancing. Yeah, and I was wondering about that too. As I was reading this, I was very conscious of my ignorance on, you know, how exactly do you drain a bog? Because I I don't know, especially with, I mean, this is modern, but it's not ultra-modern. They don't have major industrial technology. People, people were really good at this sort of thing. But they've done it for centuries, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's, a, it's probably... Doing it, so. Yeah, but I think it goes back even to the ancient. The Romans were great at that sort of thing. I I, I bet Mr. Jim Moon would know more about this. But uh, well, I know kind of the Dutch engineers who I mean, the Dutch obviously drained huge areas of land and reclaimed it from wetlands and from the sea, and that's why Charles I looked to Holland as they, they were the the go-to people. <laughs> Their um, whole land is basically yeah, that. yeah, from for you know for like several centuries, probably right up to the twentieth century. You know, if you you wanted some land range, you got in Dutch engineers. Um, when I was researching the Tiddymun story, I found all these uh these great pain, paintings, often by Dutch painters who came over to uh, the Fens of England, and um, the way they seem from I the way they did it, they uh, they actually built windmills to power the pumps to drain the water. Mm-hmm. And then wow. they, you know they had they had guys sort of you know literally filling in, you know adding the soil to the peat to make it solid and you know dredging out all the vegetation and then and then you actually know, you know filling it in. It's funny. I one of my students a couple of weeks ago was saying to me, uh, he's he's doing sort of museum oral history for a local museum, and the uh, after World War Two. Canada liberates Holland, and uh, some folks from Holland moved to Canada. Uh, and actually, this area where we've got a river that uh, regularly will overflow its banks. So what do they do? They get the, the the Dutch guys to sort of spearhead the the banking and the the levy making. And it's like, oh yeah, the connection is right there. It's like. If you if you get a Dutch guy moving into the area, he must know about this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> they they deal with it every day. So yeah, the uh, it's and but yeah, the the Dutch had been doing this back into right that that's a thousand years old, right? Holland's not a new thing. No, not at all. Of a <laughs> they've been reclaiming that area for a millennia at, at least. But when when I was um, writing this particular chapter from my dissertation, you know, when you start doing something that crazy, you start researching about really, really strange things. And one of the things mm-hmm. I was worried about is the kind of machinery they needed at that time for doing this kind of draining. And, and I found out that the Panama Tunnel was constructed, I think it was five, ten years before Lovecraft wrote the, the tale, I think. Sure. And you can have a look at the pictures that are online when they did that. And you can see the machinery and you can get an idea of how they deal with that. And, I mean, obviously, if you need to, to train a, a bug, it is not going to be that huge. But, but they really had kind of advanced stuff for, for those kind of things one century ago. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's incredible. I didn't even think about that, but of course that makes sense for a good parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that actually, that had lots of ecological consequences for the people who were working on it, right? <laughs> they, lots and lots of people died on that. And in part, I think, uh, because of tropical diseases caused by the, uh, the moving of all that water away from, uh, traditional sources, right? Uh, it was, it was a really diseasey, uh, way to get killed as you <laughs> go there. Uh, and you just die in the process, not of, uh, you know, getting shit landing on top of you, but rather, uh, because, you know, you're in a camp full of diseased people. That's an interesting point. I don't think, I never, I never thought about the tale as a kind of metaphor or, um, on, on the risks of the working class, and I don't really think uh, Lovecraft was thinking about no, that at all. About them. No, <laughs> that, that, that would be another interesting layer to consider when, when reading the, 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 the text. Because definitely all the peasants die because trying to try. The, it's a fun story, and it has that layer of depth that um, allows allows you to think about it, I think, long after. Uh, it, if you go in expecting, you know, the Great Cthulhu or uh, any of the other mythos creatures, you're not going to get anything out of it. But, but I, I tell you, the tree sticks with me in the same way. Um, and, you know, that's just about two artists in a rivalry. Uh, but because of that, that extra Greek element, thinking about, you know, the one guy who goes to the city and gets his inspiration that way. And the other guy goes out into the country and gets his inspiration that way. And then which one is better, <laughs> right? The one who's out in the country, he, his yeah. art is carved from life, right? Whereas the other guy is, he's, he's partying too much. Yeah. I mean, I, I I'm going to make another Tolkien reference, but oh well, but the, this whole disease, <laughs> this whole disease idea uh, explanation of oh they just you know got sick and died. It reminds me of um, it's narratively unsatisfying in the same way that Tolkien was so unsatisfied with uh, Macbeth and the the forest marching turned out to just be guys carrying sticks. Like that just that completely saps the story of any mythological or or narrative power. Well, I I think it works well in Macbeth, um, but. Uh, He's also working, you know, with the prophecy where it's supposed to be that way, right? Where the when a prophecy in this in the, in it's funny in this story, the prophecy is exactly right, right? The local people know yeah. they don't know exactly how it's going to work. They don't ex- explicate it, you know. Basically, here what's going to happen: you're going to hear piping, and then you're all going to be drawn into the swamp, and then uh, one of you will be sucked up into the sky. They don't say that. They say, this is a bad idea. Don't do that. We're going to leave this area, right? And so when uh, the witches are doing their, their Macbeth, uh, you know, predictions, they, they are doing, you know, it's right at the very beginning. When the battle is lost and won, well, if, how can it be lost and won? That, I'll just dismiss that. But, of course, any battle is lost and won, depending <laughs> right. on which side you're on, right? So that uh, I think that that actually fits really well into the Greek sort of tradition of uh, consulting the oracle. And she says, the wisest man in Greece is, is Socrates, because Socrates knows how unwise he is. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sort of contradictory uh, 
ridiculous, uh, we're going to try and trick you prophecy. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say Macbeth as bad as Tolkien put, but yeah, he he wanted the actual forest to to do it, and so that he's allowed to have that. Yeah, and so from that, I mean, similarly here like that, um, it's like the uh, Salem witch trials. That explanation that oh, they just ate a bunch of ergot and went you know insane. I mean, that's maybe, um, but no. it doesn't really. Yeah, it doesn't, and it definitely doesn't have the narrative power that the the story does. Hmm. Jim, didn't you have a, a previous folklore on Friday about um, a green woman who would pull people down into oh yes, teeth, uh, green legs or something like that? Jenny Green Teeth. Jenny um, Green. <laughs> I mean, she's a kind of the poster girl for this kind of a water demon or fairy, but they, they occur all over the world. Of wherever there's uh, stretches of water, there's local mythology about a supernatural being that lives there, that if you're uncareful, it will catch you and pull you down to your death. Um, yeah, you're swimming, and then she suddenly, you know, you sink under the water. It's because Jenny Greenteeth's pulling you down. This is it, yes, yeah. Um, I mean, kind of, uh, you might sort of take on that when doing some research is kind of, um, you know, drowning was a... <laughs> an extremely common form of death in ages past. I mean, people had to live near the water. They didn't have plumbing. Right. Uh, but the interesting thing is kind of Ginny Greenteeth and, uh, right to say, to Japan, the Japanese Kappa, a similar water demon, uh, another drowner, is, and the, the Australian Bunyip as well, they're all said to have long spindly arms. Um, and that's, you know, they have long arms to catch you and pull you down. And that's because the mechanics of drowning, actually, people don't drown the way they do on the movies with a lot of splashing and shouting help i'm, I'm drowning <laughs> I, you know actually you know what what happens is you know someone's head goes in the water they inhale some water and this causes um an involuntary physical reaction where the, the throat closes to stop as a defense to stop taking in more water to the lungs but unfortunately this has the you know the effect of actually suffocating the person often giving them a cardiac arrest um and what happens, a drowning person actually can just seem to be just uh, suddenly, you know, just in just treading water, totally fine, kind of at peace. And then suddenly they just disappear into the water when they lose consciousness and stop um, they get the limb movements. And the, you know, this is why people believe there was things in the water that had pulled them under, because they could have people just a few feet away. And it can happen in less than a, in less than 30 seconds. <laughs> It's that, it's that drowning is swift and frightening. <laughs> well, you know, there's one other aspect I, I, before we wrap this up. I just, I think that we haven't mentioned it so far, but, and I don't usually notice this in other Lovecraft stories, so this probably, maybe in the festival, but that's mostly white. Um, I went through, uh, and I guess it is because I was I was reading The White Ship the other day, um, because we're going to do that as well, and um, it's full. All of the, the Dreamland sort of stories, I guess, are like this. They're full of color, um, and this one is absolutely the same too. Uh, so we've got the the red litten skies, right? But uh, here's this is from the second first page, and onto the second page. It says the bog was the cause of all these troubles, as Barry told me the night I came to the castle. I had reached Kildare in the summer sunset. There's that pairing of S's. 
Uh, As the gold of the sky lighted the green of the hills and the groves and the blue of the bog, where the far islet, a strange olden ruin, glistened spectrally. So that green and the gold and the... And when he talks about the the bog, it isn't like it's a black, sort of murky sort of land outside of the, you know, the fall of the House of Usher. You know, outside of Usher, it's the, the land is usually depicted as blasted, you know, blasted heath. This is actually the opposite. It's beautiful, right? It's glistening. Um, it's swampy, yes, but it's... It's colorful, and the, the 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 heather is red, and the, there's the blue pools within the swamp. Right? It's it's depicted as sort of beautiful, and that the color throughout, other than you know the pallid path of the of the punishment there, it's all colorfully beautiful, and that is you know. Lovecraft loves his bogs. Right? <laughs> every every story he simply put a, a, a swamp in, he does. And you know, it, I don't think that's because um, you know he likes mosquitoes. I think there's something. I think there's something about it that that uh, I mean. Remember, Jim, a long time ago, we did a show on. Uh, Polaris. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And Polaris is set in, you know, it's set in the past, in a dream, but the main character, he looks out his window past the swamp and up into the sky and he sees, you know, the the pole star. But why, why does it need to be set in a swamp? Hmm. Because there's something beautiful about swamps. Yeah, I, th- I think that speaks to what I was talking earlier about the gothic kind of the gothic connection to swamps is that they are beautiful and alluring. It, it goes along with the will of the wisps too, that they're brightly colored. Um, they, they attract you in, um, you know, you, you see lots of greenery and then you kind of realize it's a giant Venus flytrap. Um, um, there's just this idea that it's a, it's a safe welcoming place and you can't escape until it's too late. <laughs> well, uh, um, the other thing, Jim, uh, not Jim, uh, Juan, you were saying uh, that that it was, th- there's a possibility that it's just the female, right? It's, oh. it's, it's very female. And Lovecraft, this is Lovecraft's way of saying, well, I guess girls aren't so bad, as long as we sort of metaphorize it. But oh. if you go in there, that's bad. You'll get drowned. <laughs> you can definitely do this kind of reading. I mean, it is probably Lovecraft will kill me if, I, if, if he hear me. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, you can do that kind of reading, and, and oh, so. you can consider the the swamp or the bog as a as a kind of feminine representation or something like that. I don't know. I, I didn't get into that in depth, but, no. but that, well, in depth that was a, a good a good joke. Um, <laughs> but but definitely, I think it is something you can you can also think about. The feminine figures are not really frequent in Lovecraft at all, and no. and the use of a female. Not monsters, because the Nayats are not monsters at all, but um, the use of them and this idea of Pan, with the, which is normally hypersexualized, um, is, is very interesting. I mean, um, they are probably the most, uh, the Nayats are probably the most sexualized or one of the most sexualized um, mythological representations of women. So 
I think the swamp is something to to consider as mm-hmm. as, as a metaphor or something there. So uh, one one thing that you do mention in here in in the paper that I, I didn't realize was a real thing until I read read it and then I thought oh I better look this up. So uh, there is this book of invasions, right? That yes, it's a real book, although the invasions are probably fictional. Is yeah, that the, right? The, inf- the invasions are completely fictional, but this book of invasions exists. I mean, it is available um, online. You can you can mm-hmm. get it. Uh, I found it out, and I had to read part of it for my dissertation. It was a, a hard task, but but it is a kind of narration of a mythical history of Ireland, um, and yeah, they explain that there were uh, three different invasions of of, of the Greeks in, into Ireland, and what you got there basically is in the in the bog. It's a sacred place because it is supposed to be a place where. Where um, the corpses, or, or yeah, the corpses of some of the of those invasors are lying. So somehow there's a cemetery there as well. This idea mm-hmm. of a sacred place because it is a burial place or something like that is there in the Mumbog as well. Yeah, it's very. It, it, there, there's a, something very interesting in it. It has this background. You know, there's an invasion, and then the people from the north, and then uh, this this one place was spared, right? But it wasn't really spared. The only thing that's left from the city that was there is a, a tiny islet with a, the ruins so badly decayed or dilapidated, as it says in the story, uh, that it's hardly recognizable as what it was, right? A Greek, sort of the Greek temple of Artemis in the center of the swamp. And, and so it's like, if you, dr- if you drain the bog, are you going to find that city? Or do you just find all the dead bodies of of the people who were saved? That's the funny thing is is that this is the one you know this is the this is the one town that was spared right from the destruction of a subsequent invasion, and yet it wasn't spared at all. Well, so that background <laughs> behind it is very interesting. Yes, definitely, and it. I mean, what it is fascinating about the tale. Is how Lovecraft mixes up the typical Gothic conventions, the ruins. I mean, it is the most typical uh, setting, a ruin, with the Greek tradition. It is like, uh, what's going on? I mean, how can you mix up two things which are so different? And this idea of the ruins there, um, well, um, I don't really know what to, what to say. I, this I kind of, I mean, it is. I it's think it's we don't know. We don't. It, it absolutely does not go into depth about it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, I mean, but it's down there, and that's. It's like why? So why is this this town that's being spared? It, it's almost like you know you don't want to drain it because then what you'll see is it'll come back. But it's still there, and there. It's like there's a contradiction there that is so fundamentally hidden beneath the story that we can't see yeah. it without draining away, draining away the story, you know? It reminds me a little bit of uh, Percy Shelley's poem Ozymandias, uh, that whole paradox of, um, yeah, this, this was the only town that was saved, and now look look at it now. It's sort of, look on me, look on my works, you mighty in despair, you know? Mm. But there's nothing left of Ozymandias' statue but a couple of trunks of legs. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, I think the, the, the core or, or the whole thing is the, 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 the classical Faustian knowledge. I mean, do I want to get knowledge 
even if it is dangerous for me, if I want to know what is um, uh, down there in the under the or in the depths of the of the bog, um, will it be dangerous or not? Should I get the knowledge or not? And that's something that comes from 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 Marlowe and Faustus, and it is right. everywhere in Lovecraft. I mean, books oh, are yeah. dangerous in Lovecraft, mm. but definitely. Yeah. I think Lovecraft prefers to get knowledge, in, 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 even if you are going to, I don't know, to die or to just come crazy or whatever. Yeah, or, or as in the case of the rats in the walls, you know, to start yeah. eating your friend. Yeah, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> as you do. Um, Let's just tie into right? a whole strand in Lovecraft of lost cities where something still remains of its former power That's dormant right. until you disturb it. I mean, you've obviously got uh, Cthulhu's corpse city and uh, the city of the old ones and the Mountain of Madness, but in, in the early story stakes, you've also got, like, the temple where a submarine yes. crew, uh, you know, found these subterranean ruins and disturbed That's something that... Well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Polaris is the same story, right? Mm. Uh, it, there's a... Uh, there's a hidden city um, in the wastes of the north, and that was driven out by the Inutos, right? <laughs> you know, it's like he's he's got he's got hidden cities wherever they're wherever they they possibly can be, right? Under the sea, under the under the house, or uh, under the swamp. Well, Lovecraft was big on the you know, the ideas that were very current in his time about you know um, the rise and fall of civilizations and. You know, this was something that, you know, it was, it was very big, you know, in intellectual circles, uh, Specklinger's decline of the West of, you know, how kind of, yeah, we're doing great, but look back at history. There's the Assyrians, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Aztecs. These guys thought they were doing great, and where are they now? Bunch of rocks. <laughs> you know, we're heading the same way. And, uh, you know, Lovecraft, kind of with his cosmic vision, I mean, one thing, that's good about uh, and why he stood the test of time is Lovecraft horrors aren't personal horrors like Poe's. They're they've got this scope of vision, and you know I think kind of the sunken city in in the moon bog is kind of this idea of you know again this one city survived, but in the end it's just today it's still just a ruin. Time wins every time. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Jesse has a lot of fans. I got a lot of fans. (laughs) Mostly not on the internet, just in my apartment.